This episode is brought to you by the Big Ears Festival, taking place from March 21st through 24th, 2024 in Knoxville, and featuring an incredible range of performers, from Herbie Hancock to Lori Anderson to Kurt Vile. BigEarsFestival.org This episode is brought to you by Atomic Books. Atomic is an independent bookstore full of objects made of paper, vinyl, plastic, and various other actual materials at the edge of time. Specializing in literary comics, small press, art books, and great regional beer at 8 Bar in the back of the store. Come to 3620 Falls Road in Hamden or go to AtomicBooks.com. Atomic Books, literary finds for mutated minds. I mean, when I'm recording, I think of myself... um I, I think of myself as, well, I'm a blind person, basically. So I think, what are these things telling me about the sound? What is Echo saying? Where is that putting me? It's kind of, you know, if a big echo is putting me in the Grand Canyon, you know, a, a, a big reverb is putting me in a, a certain kind of reverb is putting me in a room, a huge room made of stone or a, or a smaller room made of stone or a room made of wood, you know, um, it's putting me at a certain distance from the listener. Though that's the sonic information I'm getting. So if I want, the point is is not that any of those things is bad. The question is, do I want them? This is Essential Tremors. I'm Lee Gardner. I'm Matt Byers. The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs, necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives, or their lives in general. Considered in underground circles as the guitarist's guitarist, Mark Ribot has had a prolific career as a deeply free player who defies expectations, regardless of the implied genre of the song in which he appears. Perhaps best known for his work with Tom Waits, Ribot has also played with a long list of luminaries from a variety of musical worlds, including Cayetano Veloso, John Zorn, David Sylvian, Wilson Pickett, Ardo Lindsay, T-Bone Burnett, Chibo Mato, Sam Phillips, Elvis Costello, and Robert Plant. Rabot will perform at this year's Big Ears Festival in Knoxville, Tennessee in March. The first song Rabot chose as being formative for him was Simbi by Franz Cassius. Thank you. 
Well, I picked it because I I love it, and it was one of the first per- pieces that.、Um, well, first of all, I played it even from the time I've been was a teenager. I I took lessons with Franz, and he taught it to me. But also, it's one of the first pieces of recorded music that I ever really listened to, and it really shaped my idea of 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 how to record. A, a a solo guitar, at least. I mean,、um, the recording technique was very very simple. It, it, it was recorded for、uh, Smith. Well, at the time, it was just Folkways music,、um, Folkways records, and now Smithsonian Folkways, and it's it's available now through Smithsonian Folkways, by the way,、um, uh, on a on a record called.、Uh, Called Haitian dances, Haitian suite by Franz Cassais,、um, but it is yeah, it it shaped my idea of how recording should sound. They obviously were in a very in a pro, a room that doesn't sound huge,、um, like a radio recording studio almost, with very little ambience, and they stuck a very good microphone very close to his guitar. So it's this intimate guitar sound. It's、um, it's the it's it's the opposite of people who really try to make things sound. Per- it reveals all the little faults of the guitar and all the little details that huge、um, that huge reverbs are designed to to mask to hide.、Um, and for me, it's the most beautiful. Um, and you said that it sort of uh, 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 shaped your notion of, of, of you know, well, I'm not going to recall exactly what you said, but it shaped your notion of playing guitar, obviously, or, or to some degree, and recording guitar, in the sense that it,、um, the notion of not giving yourself anywhere to hide, or that sort of sense of intimacy, or could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, the the I well, I haven't. So far, I haven't talked about the the music at all. I'll get, I guess, I'll get to that. I've just talked about the recording techniques, but yeah, it's that idea of,、um, I mean, that idea that that you can do that, that you can be that intimate with the listener. You can just put yourself in a room right in front of them. You don't have to be put yourself high up on a mountain or on a Commanding stage, you can put yourself, you know, right in their ear. <laughs> so、um, that was that was good. It's, you know, of, of course, I don't. It's not. I'm not trying to create some ideology in which I say that reverb is bad, you know, or distance is bad, or or very gorgeous,、um, you know, very gorgeous. Reverbs and echoes are 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 bad. I'm just saying that it's. I like I like recording in which they're one option, and that、um, the language of recording takes in all includes all these options to be closer or further away, to be louder or softer, to be of the 1930s or of the 19 or of the. Two thousand and seventies, you know,、um, all these things are are options, and I'm、um, 
I'm glad. But it, but it wasn't the way this is. Franz's recording was was made. I think it was probably also made direct to two track. Probably wasn't even multi track recording. So this gave it gives it a fantastic quality. This and the the quality of the mic, and no doubt whoever the engineer was. Thanks to them, it's probably Moses Ash himself, who owned the record company, and I think did a lot of it, of its work. Um, uh, so, so thanks to them, it's it's very high, um, very high quality. And of of course, when I first heard it, it was uh, on vinyl. So, you know, can't beat that. Um. You know the, that the, the, that idea of of the reverb. Uh, it makes me. Uh, did you? There was a documentary several years ago called "It Might Get Loud." Did you happen to see that? No, I missed that. I wanted to see it though. Uh, you know, just briefly. There's a the the Edge is one of the three guitarists, famous guitarists in it, and you know, from U two. And he's uh, there's a scene where he's standing in like his house or his studio, and there's a giant, literally a wall of you know, rack processors and, you know, effects and things like that. And he's, he's plugged into it and he's playing and he's, you know, you know, the sound is coming out that sounds like him, you know, that beautiful sort of echoey reverby U2 sound. And then he like flips a switch and basically turns it all off and he plays the same thing. And it's like blink, 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 you know, and he's, he has a look on it. He has a look on his face like, yeah, I know. I mean, a big part of my thing is this giant, you know, well, again, I'm not, I'm not ideologically opposed to any of it. You know, it's all, it's all good, um, but it's good to be aware of the those different effects. Those, it's a, it's good to be aware that, I mean, wh- when I'm recording, I think of myself, um, you know, I, I, I think of myself as well. I'm a blind person, basically. So I think, what are these things telling me about the sound? What is echo saying? Where is that putting me? It's kind you know, if a big echo is putting me in the Grand Canyon, you know, a, a, a big reverb is putting me in a, a certain kind of reverb is putting me in a room, a huge room made of stone or a, or a smaller room made of stone or a room made of wood, you know, um, it's putting me at a certain distance from the listener. Though that's the sonic information I'm getting. So if I want, the point is is not that any of those things is bad. The question is, do I want them? Um, you know, I've uh, uh, you know paid attention to your your music and your playing across your own work and your work with other uh, musicians over a long time now. Uh, in fact, I actually talked to you at, in my very first journalism job uh, a long time ago. I was, I was able to convince my editor at the time that, you know, that's what the kids were into was Mark Rebo. Um, and, um, um, but, you know, I've heard you talk about, you know, uh, Franz Caseos is, you know, your, your, your mentor, the person who taught you guitar. And in hindsight, I mean, what an extraordinary experience to have, to have this person with such uh, a unique, maybe not unique, but a, a, a perspective outside of the typical guitar teacher, I guess, that you might find uh, at any given uh, guitar store or, you know, place that you might take music lessons. And I'm curious, um, you know, what was he like as a person? What did he teach you that didn't have anything to do with music? 
Well, he was he he was a good friend, you know. I mean, I he was kind of a family member. I've I've as I've said all this in interviews before, but um, you know, when Franz moved to the United States in uh, I think forty eight or forty nine. 1948 or 49. Um, he didn't really have family here. And um, anyways, f- through various connections, he became friends with my uncle and aunt. Um, my aunt was a songwriter. She wrote under the name of Rhoda Roberts. Um, um, <clears throat> and anyways, they all became friends and, and wound up living around the block from each other. And so Franz used to, you know, be at family dinners, um, you know, on Thanksgiving or whatever. And, um, and I guess he must have been bored <laughs> because he used to practice, you know, he used, to, he used to practice and I would sit. And so he was the first person I heard play music live, certainly in my house. Um, and I would just sit and listen. I was amazed. And so... Later on, when I had decided to play guitar, um, both because I had liked the Rolling Stones and Keith Richards and um, and also because I'd gotten braces, so playing trumpet hurt, um, it was decided by my family that Franz would be my teacher. Uh, not really because I had any interest whatsoever in classical guitar. Um, uh, but you know, it, it all worked out for the better. I Franz as a person was, he was very wise. I mean, he understood, um, you know, don't, he didn't want to kill me with technique, you know, um, from the, from the beginning, he figured, okay, let the kid learn a couple of tune so he can impress his friends at parties and then if he's serious he'll come back and learn learn the technique i i i need to add that i'm not sure i ever became serious <laughs> in that sense but um and i'm not sure i if i impressed my friends at parties either come to think of it but anyways it was a good he he gave me pieces that i could play um and as a, you know, 12 through 14-year-old, 11, 12, 13, 14-year-old, those were the years I took lessons with him. It was a great thing to have. It was, um, you know, it was a way of withstanding loneliness, first of all, something that you can do, um, I guess, other than take drugs or something. Uh, um, And... Well, let, some of us did it in addition to taking drugs. But anyways, let's not go there. But um, uh, for, yeah, he was he was always very, um, he, I think he was, re, you know, he, his first language was Creole, languages were Creole and Creole and, and French. So I think he was probably reading French philosophers at the time because he had a very existential attitude towards um, respect for you know he, he didn't have 
he, let's just say his perspective was different than the other adults in my life. He didn't, uh, he didn't see me as material to be shaped into some desired outcome. He, he was, um, you know, he, he gave me a lot of space. The second piece of music Rabot chose as being essential to forming his sensibilities was Theme from a Symphony, Variation 2, by Ornette Coleman. Coleman primetime recording so you know um, and and this was a very important recording for me because important because in this recording like Ornette Coleman kind of abstracted some ideas about improvising and about jazz he abstracted them from the traditional jazz genre, swing, bebop, and kind of transpose these ideas, con- concepts of, of freedom, uh, how to counterbalance the freedom of the improvisers and the unity of the, of the composition or the unity of the performance. He transposed them into a a music that was not recognizable stylistically as jazz, at least at the time. Uh, basically, he took a bunch of young funk players, Jamaluddin Takuma, Calvin Weston, and a, a, a very interesting jazz player, uh, uh, Bern, Bern Nix, and Charles Ellerby, uh, also on guitar. And, and he, you know, these... I think Jamal was like 19 or something like that, maybe even younger. And Jamal and Calvin, when Ornette kind of, I think, took them to Paris and put them in a house and (laughs) rehearsed every waking minute for a long time. Um, And they came up with this amazing sound. Um, It's a, a way of doing polyphony in which... Well, first of all, uh, melodically, it's interesting because it's polytonal, um, which means that you weren't just improvise deciding what what notes to play, but you could freely mutate what key to play it in, and which doesn't mean you could just play it in any key because some keys sound good 
against other keys and other keys sound less good. So it just meant it opened up the, uh, the parameters of improvising. And the other thing, years, years later, I got to play with primetime band after the death of uh, Burn, unfortunate and, and early death of Burn Nix. Um, uh, uh, they had some, some gigs and Donardo was kind enough to, to call me. Um, and in the rehearsals for those gigs, you know, I got, a, I mean, of course, Ornette had already passed at that point. Um, but I got a kind of a, I got a feel for how the band worked in rehearsals and they were, they were doing something that really smart recording studio musicians and engineers do. What they were working on was creating a space, a sonic space for each instrument, which had to do with both what you played, where on the instrument you played it, high or low, the tone out, the tone, trebly, bassy, wah-wah pedal, distortion, or just plain uh, um, that you used in order to, you know, all these things um, had each, it was, it was all okay, whatever you played, as long as one, it related in some way to the motif of the song, and two, each instrument had its own sonic space. You know, I mean, when I'm in the studio, I try to think like this too. It's, I envision it like a sandwich, the sound like a sandwich, which each, each thing has to have its layer. Because if two things are trying to occupy the same layer, then the sandwich gets a big lump in it and it's no good. <laughs> it all falls apart. Um, so anyways, so I loved that about that band. Plus, um, I don't know, I, I loved Ornette, Ornette's uh, compositions at, at the time, at that period I, ha I have a special thing for. But also, um, it was, you know, I think Ornette wanted to grab much younger players and players from outside the regular jazz genre but in Calvin Weston and, and Jamaluddin Takuma, he got that, but he also got much more because Jamal is um, really, a, his bass playing is just a force of nature. Um, I mean, it, there's a certain joyousness and propulsion to his playing that uh, is always a wonder. And, and him and Calvin, uh, um, well, in that period and, and ever since, have have a special special connection. So, of course, Donardo himself was playing on a bunch of those records, and is playing now better than ever. So, um, but what you get with all those players is a, <laughs> what you get with all those players is a, a certain kind of polyphony that I haven't heard it yet anywhere else. Um. One of the things, um, I mean, I've always been fascinated by dancing in your head um, from the first time I heard it uh, up till, you know, up till now. Just because it, it's one of those things, and I've I've experienced this reaction where people hear it and 
it has the uh, ability to kind of make people crazy just because the the central uh, melodic uh, material, I guess you could say, is so repetitive and kind of has this nagging quality in a way. But it's like I remember like the first hearing it, it's like you're sort of, um, you know, being relatively young and kind of, you know, oh, well, we're not Coleman, you know, and I'll listen to this. And, you know, you're waiting for the thing to happen and, you know, the, the, you're waiting for things to change and then sort of realizing that it's all, it's all changing. It's all changing all around underneath. And it's like, right. Okay. So you're, you're, what you, what, what you think you're waiting for is already happening. You're just not, you just have to, you're, you're list, you have to listen for a different thing. You know, you're not going to get, you know, the bop head and then, you know, the series of, you know, clearly demarcated solos, you know, that you're used to from right. a typical jazz right, right. recording. It's like a whole different thing. So. No, it's co- Well, one of the things you're picking up on there is that it's collective improvising, which, you know, so everybody's playing almost all the time. Um, and, you know, this is, was a, you know, at the time, big new thing. You know, but actually, it wasn't a new thing. As the art ensemble said, it was ancient to the future. It's it's something that that Ornette's band had has in common with, uh, you know, with with jazz from the nineteen twenties with Louis Armstrong, you know, Kid Ory, you know, <laughs> like, um, so that kind of ensemble playing. Another thing that you're picking up on is the repetitive parts of it, which I think Ornette had had contact with the Jujuka uh, musicians and had gotten and had jammed with them and had, had picked, was pick was uh, picking up on some of their composition, their, some of the, some of the ideas about repetition in that music. But, you know, Beyond it just being repetition, <clears throat> what's interesting to me is like we come to music with certain culturally trained um, expectations and, you know, and people come to music like with the idea of, okay, there's these forms and I got to fit my idea into one of these forms. Okay. So it's been four bars, so now it's time to change the chord. And now it's been 16 bars, so it's time to either repeat or go on to a new section. And now it's, you know, we've done that, so it's time to go back to the original section. You know, that's the form. You do the you do the first section, the first um, eight-bar section once, then you do it again. Then you do another eight-bar section. Then you do the first eight-bar section again, and that's the song. And... What Ornette was, you know, what Ornette was um, dealing with something else. He said, well, oh, he didn't say this, but he enacted it. Um, He played it. Well, you play something and it either sounds good or it sounds bad. If it sounds bad, you play something else. If it sounds good, you keep playing it. How long do you keep playing it? As long as it sounds good. (laughs) You don't stop after eight bars if it still sounds good. You don't stop after 32 bars if it still sounds good. 
What do you do when it doesn't sound good? Um, well, then you play, you know, that's another question. You, you play something else, you know, um, but, but there's no preset. It could be after, you know, one bar. It could be after 70 bars, you know, doesn't have to be in multiples of four. Doesn't have to be in four, four at all, or, or a particular time signature at all. Although, although here's another, here's another thing about those recordings. Um, they groove, they groove like crazy. So, you know, it's very important to, um, yeah, to, to, you can have that kind of freedom, uh, with key signatures and time signatures and still groove like crazy. That was another one of the many lessons of, of the prime of prime time band. Beyond Video is a volunteer-run video library in Baltimore. Basically, an old-school video rental store reimagined with a 21st-century nonprofit twist. Beyond offers nearly 30,000 titles from every region, era, and genre of cinema on DVD, Blu-ray, and VHS, a collection created by crowdsourcing disc donations from movie lovers like you. With no rental fees or late fees, members get unlimited rentals from their collection for a small monthly donation. Find out more about joining or donating at beyondvideo.org, or when in Baltimore, visit Beyond at 2545 North Howard Street. And for a limited time, new members who mention Essential Tremors when signing up will get an extra month for free. What do Tony Conrad, Reese Chatham, Captain Beefheart, and Faust have in common? Each have legendary recordings on the table of the Elements record label. Long out of print, these and other records from the label are available again with the Table of the Elements Discovery Box, available only at WithinThings.com. Within Things Curiosity Shop has partnered with the label to help continue their legacy of connecting sound with listeners since 1993. Visit WithinThings.com and search Table of the Elements to learn more. The final piece of music Rabot chose as being crucial to him was Dirty Man by Chocolate Genius. pick uh i'm gonna pick a song uh called by mark anthony thompson the chocolate genius uh called dirty man can you find that uh i'm sure i don't know it but uh we'll we'll find it and uh by, by the time we get ready so 
Uh, tell me about it. Tell me why you picked it. Um, I picked it for two reasons. Uh, one, because I think that Mark is one of the great American songwriters, and he's been unfairly, unfairly neglected. And the other reason is because I listened to it right before you called, and I thought it was funny. <laughs> and I'm afraid beyond that, I don't have much to say about it. Can you uh, give me a little background on it? Have you worked with him? Uh, yes, I have. I played on a, a couple of his records. Um, although, uh, if I'm supposed to name them, which ones? Um, you know, I never listened to stuff I re played on. You know, by the time by the time it's released, I've heard it enough. You know, <laughs> except. Um, or I rarely, rarely go back. Um, uh, but yeah, I met Mark, uh, through Ardo Lindsay, um, I guess in the nineties and he actually produced, he produced a couple of tracks for me. Um, he used to have a studio, him and Dougie Bound, my drummer friend from the Lounge Lizards, uh, had a studio um, had a studio on Ludlow Street, which was in the nineties the second the center of a certain kind of it was uh one of the new bohemias um, uh, it was the center of a certain kind of um, grooviness and uh they had a studio in a basement on Ludlow Street called Low Blood Studios. And we did a lot of experimenting there. Um, a, an early band of, of Yuka Hondas uh, came out of there, Hope is a Muscle. Um, uh, and let's see, yeah, a lot of other projects, a lot of other recording got done there. And um, it was a good time for all of us. I wonder, I mean, uh, you, you get to a certain point and, you know, you feel like you're sort of conversant with music. I know that's a dumb thing to say, but, you know, you sort of feel like, oh, you know, I've heard this and I've heard that. I sort of know what's going on. And then, you know, someone, uh, you know, introduces you to something or you hear something and you feel like, you know, oh, my God, there's like a giant Indiana Jones warehouse uh, of stuff behind that that I had no idea about. You know, it's just endless, endless and it's like even among people who are relatively well known, like you know, I've heard of Chocolate Genius. I don't really know his work though. Uh, I know he's playing Big Ears this year, as are you. Um, but I mean, it just seems like there are so many great artists who make great music, and they there just isn't enough recognition to go around. And I don't know, maybe you feel this sometimes yourself. It just, um, you know. Uh, it, it gets frustrating. There are people that I think are amazing and I try to get people interested and it just, it just seems like there isn't enough to go around enough interest, enough attention, enough recognition, not to mention enough money. I'm sure. Well, th th I was going to get to that <laughs> because you know, the, the question of uh, interest and attention those are kind of an existential problem. I mean, we only have two ears and uh, 
there are only so many hours we can listen to music and there are only so many of us. And if there's more people cranking it out than listen, well, that's the way it is, you know. Um, but that le- the, the, the money question is not existential, really. That's social. Um, and, you know, I guess it's not a, you know, what happened at, uh, well, towards, you know, what hap- what's happened post-Napster is that a lot of people who would have been able to sustain themselves by whatever number of listeners they were able to attract before are not able to now. And they're not able to because, well, because <laughs> YouTube and Google have built an ad-based and data mining f- 1.75 trillion dollar empire based on the use of our work without our consent, often without our consent or remuneration, which means that a whole lot of deserving people who have enough people listening to them are not making enough to stay in music, which is a shame. This has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore. For more information about Essential Tremors, go to EssentialPodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.